This Week in Startups is brought to you by Blinkist, the only app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. Go to Blinkist.com twist to start your free seven-day trial. NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get NetSuite's guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, when you go to netsuite.com twist. And Campaign Monitor, email marketing platform used by more than 250,000 businesses worldwide. Try Campaign Monitor for free at campaignmonitor.com twist. Listeners who sign up and become a customer receive a free t-shirt. Church doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, recently wrote a great book that was uh, recommended by many of uh, many of the folks in here. Um, so yeah, without uh, further ado, I'll introduce Alad Gill. Cool. Well, uh, thanks everybody for having me today. Um, so uh, I was asked to talk on the topic of fundraising and to make it super tactical. So this is going to be extremely tactical. Um, feel free to stop me at any moment, and um, it's going to go pretty fast. So let's see how it goes. Uh, quick about me, um, my career is basically split between operating, so I started um, up a lot of the mobile efforts for Google, uh, started a company that Twitter bought, helped scale Twitter from 90 to 1,500 people, um, started a company called Color Genomics, uh, where our CEO for the first four years stepped down about two years ago, and then as an investor, I'm, I'm involved with a number of uh, breakout companies from the last uh, generation of companies, you know, Airbnb, Coinbase, Stripe, et cetera, and then um, I recently wrote a book called The High Growth Handbook, which is all about, you know, how to scale companies. Um, a quick word of warning in terms of everything that I tell you, uh, the only good, good generic startup advice is that there is no good generic startup advice. So please view everything through the context of your own company and some of it could just not apply at all. Um, so everything is contextual. And in addition, I don't think every company should raise money. I think a lot of companies should bootstrap, some could raise debt. There's all sorts of ways to actually finance what you're doing. You can get paid by customers. Um, and so I think there's too much emphasis on the venture model in Silicon Valley. Uh, and there's other ways to do it too. And I think sometimes actually it's wrong to raise money actually actively because your company isn't a good fit and you can blow up something that's actually quite good if you ran it differently than if you ran it as a traditional venture backed business. So I'm gonna go through these 12 things um, and it's all the various nuances of fundraising. So round structures, uh, who you want as an investor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're gonna go through all of these, so I'm not gonna belabor the agenda. Um, so first thing is, uh, what are different round structures that you can set up if you're raising money? And for a series A, there's really primarily only one structure, which is you go out and you find a lead investor as a VC and they invest in your company and then everybody else sort of catalyzes around that round and around that brand sort of um, uh, pulling in capital. The other way to do it is actually what's known as a party round. And in that case, what you're doing is you're sequentially rolling in smaller checks from a broader pool of angels, and the company is effectively setting terms, and no one individual investor has enough bargaining power to actually um, influence uh, the entire round. I mean, they can sort of talk things up and down, um, but really what you do as a founder is you go, you meet with half a dozen angels, you try and feel out their sensitivity to price, and then you effectively say our pre-money is, I'm making up a number, $10 million, and anybody who wants in, that's sort of our price, and you just sort of roll checks in sequentially. Um, one of the tactics that tends to work for that structure is you um, get a few people to commit who may be more uh, uh, valuation insensitive or who may be um, you know, newer investors, and then you have a, a base by which you can then go and close the rest of the money. So for example, if you're doing a million dollar seed round and you raise 500K through small 50, 100K checks, 
you have a lot more bargaining power because half the rounds are done as you talk to larger investors. Um, the the downside is that um, you know ultimately because you don't have a lead, there's nobody who's truly on the hook to help the company. And so sometimes if things go badly with the company as, at the output of a party round, there's there's nobody who's really going to help as a follow on or something else. Um, that may also happen if you have a lead round, but you know with a party round it may be more common. Uh, the other approach that a lot of people do is do what's known as a lead round where the terms are actually set by a single investor. So you get a large angel fund to do it or an individual. Um, in this case, the lead tends to write a pretty big check. So for example, you're raising a million dollar round, somebody writes a 500K check and then everybody else sort of follows on whatever terms that, that fund sets. And then the lead is often viewed as, as somebody who's on the hook to really help that company. And if something goes wrong, they're the ones who are supposed to step in. So there's sort of a designated person to help as well. Um, as you raise money from investors, you should view it as almost like an extension of your team and ask what's the portfolio of skill sets that you want from the angels who are coming into your round. And so I usually think of it as seven types of capital when all is said and done. Um, there's company builders or operators, so people who can give you very tactical advice on hiring, firing, uh, pricing, you know, different aspects of running a business. There's people who have broad networks, can introduce you to customers, can introduce you to partners. Um, experts, so somebody who really knows the industry extremely well, in this case, hot dogs. Uh, somebody who can uh, help with life cycle issues, so follow-on fundraises, can introduce you to VCs for a Series A, they can help with the M&A. There's branded money, which isn't necessarily helpful money, and that could either be something like a Hollywood brand or it could be a well-known operator who just isn't ever going to do anything for you, but you want their brand name as part of recruiting or other things. And then it sort of gets worse as you move into filler money, which is fine. You know, it's just money, but it's not necessarily going to help. And then there's people who are actively destructive. You know, when my first company, uh, Mixer Labs, exited to Twitter, um, we had one angel who kept advocating for himself and kept asking for more of the deal. And it was just an awful experience. So I'd never work with that person again. And that person's actually on the Midas list. And so there were some terrible people out there um, in the angel community. Actually, it's a fun person. So they actually run an angel fund. Um, series A uh, is very different from a seed. Um, and I should say a Series A investor investing in a seed has pros and cons. So often people will ask me, should I bring a traditional venture capitalist into my very first round of financing? And so I'm raising a seed round and do I want you know, some brand name venture fund uh, in it? Um, the pros, of course, are that the VC fund is a quality signal to employees and customers. And I've actually seen a lot of venture funds now doing preemption. So they're involved with the seed of a company. The company seems to be working well, and they'll just come in with a big check before the company can go out to market. And so um, those are the positives. The negatives are there is some signaling risk where if the company isn't going very well and they go out to raise a Series A, um, there, other venture capitalists will interpret uh, a lot through the lens of whether that VC is participating or uh, competing for the deal. So for example, you have some brand name firm that's an investor and um, they're not actually trying to compete to do your Series A. Everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? Right. And so you have to sort of explain it away. You have to say, well, they weren't really involved or, oh, you know, it's a firm that's done a large number of angel checks. So we weren't ever really close to them. And so you need some explanation in terms of why aren't they being aggressive about taking the round. Um, so that's the that's the primary risk of having a VC in the round. And so I don't have an opinion of whether you should do it or not. It's more those are the trade-offs. And in general, honestly, everything is just a trade-off. There's no sort of right answer for most things. Um, in terms of what's actually going to attract an investor, there's sort of a hierarchy of company state that will imply how successful or how quickly your fundraise should likely go. And fundraising can take anywhere between 
two weeks and you know five six months depending on where you are in this hierarchy and what market you're in and everything else time of year impacts things a lot like you don't want to raise over the summer or over thanksgiving such christmas break it's just because a lot of the vcs are gone and so you just lose momentum in your fundraise um, for angel rounds it's probably okay uh, because there's more people around um, but the hierarchy is basically do you have real traction is first and foremost so you have a high margin high growth business in a massive market that's compounding 30 percent a week you know that's going to be a very easy fundraise um, if you're in a hot market you know you're doing something in cryptocurrencies a year ago or you have a very well-known founder or serial entrepreneur or whatever then that fundraise will be extremely easy um, and then it sort of moves down the hierarchy you know you're a strong team with a prototype or you're a strong team with an idea or a lesser team with a prototype or you know worst cases you're a bad team with slides right it's sort of like the hardest to raise money and so uh, really depending on where you fall on this, it's gonna impact the range of time it's gonna take you. In general, uh, for a seed round, it should take two weeks to four months and usually it takes two to three months. What you'll find is for the first month in many cases, nobody's gonna be biting and you're like, what's going on and why is it taking so long? And then one person will commit and then everybody will catalyze around it because most people are fear-driven versus ambition-driven in the investor community. Um, as mentioned, you can roll some small checks along the way, and that will actually help a lot with momentum because then you have a piece committed and it doesn't feel like an infinite amount of capital is left. Um, you can parallelize a large number of checks, so you can talk to lots of people simultaneously, which is what you tend to do in an angel round. Uh, and then uh, you probably have slightly different strategies if you're trying to raise 250K versus $4 million. A $200,000, $300,000 pre-seed round is generally easy to pull together, especially if the valuation is low, just because there's so much capital out there. A $4 million seed may be harder because you're going to have to start pulling in funds, and that means you're going to be negotiating um, a bit more with institutions, and that usually takes a bit longer. Uh, and then once enough people are in, you know, some fraction of the round is in, everything will tip. Uh, for a million-dollar round, it could be as low as two, three hundred k For a $4 million round, you actually need more of it committed before everybody tips because everybody's still waiting to see if you'll make it. So if you have 250 k of a $4 million round, people will kind of be waiting around because there's so much left in terms of room to go. Uh, and then it's usually really easy to structure. Uh, I'd say, you know, uh, 80, 70, 80% of um, seed rounds are, are currently being done as safes or convertible notes, and then the rest is equity. You know, seven, eight years ago, it was flipped. It was almost all equity rounds, and then there was some convertible notes, and safes were a, a very rare concept, or convertible equity, as it was called then. For a series A, B, or C, so, you know, the next stage of the company, um, it usually takes longer, so it'll take between two, two weeks and six months. The median is probably three, four months. And the reason it takes longer is you need to find a lead and the institution needs to do a lot more diligence on the company. So those two things tend to take much longer and you'll need to run a coordinated process where you're trying to keep all the different VCs in lockstep. With angels, you can kind of talk to people and roll them in over time. With the venture around, you're gonna have to do it. You know, everybody's talked to in the first two weeks and then you try and get term sheets all within the same period so everybody's in sync so that you can run an auction effectively. And the terms tend to be much more complicated. Uh, you're gonna have to have a board seat, protective provisions, a variety of different other things that don't exist in seed rounds. A very common mistake, and I'm gonna go through common fundraising mistakes for series A, B, C, is that people think, well, I'm gonna ask for a lot of money and a high valuation, and the VC is gonna negotiate me down and we'll meet in the middle because that's how I negotiate. And it turns out that what will happen is the VCs just won't even talk to you. They'll say, oh, you're asking for too big a check given your state. It's not worth our time to engage with this person. And so what you've done is you've broken your auction dynamic. What you want to do is ask for a little bit less money and then have VCs compete to do it. And that'll drive up price and valuation. 
because now they're emotionally committed to winning the investment. Um, so in general, what you want to do is actually anchor a little bit lower. So say you want to raise $10 million. I would encourage people to say that they want to raise six to eight and then let the auction dynamic push it up. And if it doesn't, great, you raise six to eight and you're done. I've seen a lot of companies say, we're gonna, we want to raise 10 and they ask for 15 to 20 and nobody will talk to them and they can't go back. They can't say, oh, wait, wait, we were kidding. Now it's 10. Um, and so I've seen a lot of fundraise blow up because of that. In general, for a series A, companies will buy between 15 and 25%. It's really a range of 15 to 30% of the company. The median is between 18 and 22, 23%. And in general, they'll kind of argue that they really need 20 to 25%, but you can kind of negotiate around it depending on where you are in that hierarchy of interestingness. Blinkist is a micro-learning app and platform. They provide personal and professional enhancement by offering you audio and text-based top-line insights from both best-selling authors and undiscovered nonfiction books. I love this product. I use it all the time. I am a paying customer. Blinkist.com is an amazing app. And your call to action is to go to Blinkist.com slash twist to start your seven-day free trial. Blinkist. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash twist to get that seven-day free trial. And one thing you might know, might not know, is that since 2012, Blinkist has raised over $35 million. They have over 80 employees and over 6 million international users have enjoyed Blinkist 15-minute explainers, i.e. books in blinks that are available in text and audio. Digest or Books in Blinks feature top-line ideas extracted from over 2,500 nonfiction books in many genres, entrepreneurship, politics, science, psychology, investment, and parenting. And I love to use these myself to sample the book, get a little bit of an idea of what it's about. And then after I do three or four of them, I go and I'll buy the actual full audiobook. But I love to get this as a reinforcer as well. So sometimes I'll listen to an audiobook and I forget it. And then I get these nice notes, nice and organized, and I can read or listen to them. I do it in the car, I do it in the gym. It's amazing. And Blinkist is really one of Berlin's fastest growing startups. I don't know how I missed this investment, but boy, are they crushing it. 35 million raised to date with over 80 employees. Congratulations to the team at Blinkist. And remember, go ahead and go to Blinkist.com twist to start that free seven-day trial. Thanks again to Blinkist for supporting independent media like This Week in Startup. Let's get back to this program. Um, in terms of your deck, Sequoia actually has a really good breakdown um, that you can just find if you do a search for Sequoia deck. And I also just put it down here. But uh, basically what you want to cover is what's your company's purpose or mission? What's a problem you're trying to solve? How do you solve it? Uh, what's the market? Um, usually, I, uh, you know, this should, shouldn't be five slides. I, I think you can consolidate it down. Um, I'd usually put competition actually later. I don't think you need to front load that. I'd really focus on product and business model and distribution. Um, the team slide sometimes can go at the very front uh, for a seed raise in particular, because really it's about the team in many cases as well as the market. And you're gonna be introducing yourself, so you may as well just show the team slide. Um, and then there's the financials, and people actually spend a lot of time on the financials, um, which you wouldn't expect. Like if you send it through DocSend and you can see metrics on where people spend time, that's actually the, the time, that's where I've seen people spend the most time on slides. And I think a part is because it's a lens into how you think about the business, even though your financials are going to be wrong if you're a seed company. It's very hard to predict. Yeah. 
Would you use the same structure for a teaser deck versus a meeting deck? Oh, um, it's up to you. Uh, you could do a, a shorter teaser deck, or you could just say, you know what, I, you know, I think people tend to be very paranoid about competition. On average, it doesn't matter that much, honestly. But I think it's okay to if if there are things that you think are truly unique or differentiated in terms of what you're doing, you could keep it out of the the main thing and send it as a teaser deck. The downside, of course, is they won't see that unique thing and then they won't know whether you're interesting or not. So yeah, you could you could definitely do a, sh a shorter deck. Um, in terms of investor intros, there's good replies and bad replies. So say that an angel introduces you to another angel and they say, hey, you should meet this person, see seeing them. And then you reply with, hey, thanks so much. Great to meet you. Let's connect. And that's a, that's a terrible reply. Um, and I've seen a lot of these. Um, really what you want to do is move the person to BCC so they're not on an endless thread for scheduling. Um, and then you want to drop in a few things. Number one is you want to drop in social proof. So, you know, brand name investor is already involved or we have XYZ as advisors, whatever it is. Um, if you have traction, we have this traction. We're growing 20% a month. Um, we're an awesome team. We've done all this great stuff before. So you want to put in social proof because many angels or especially funds will see so many companies that you want to be able to stand out and make them take the meeting. And then the round is coming together quickly. So there's time pressure. It doesn't mean we're going to meet in a month. Like if you say, hey, good to meet you. Let me know. Like you don't sound very serious or on top of it. And then suggest specific times so you don't put the burden of scheduling on them. They may say, no, I can't make those, but here's an alternative. But I've actually seen response rates go up if you do this versus not because people are like, fuck, like you're putting the burden on me now. And then um, lastly, why are you talking to them? Or why did you want to talk to them? Hey, I noticed you're a great SaaS investor and you did investments in these companies or whatever it is, and I'm a SaaS company. So th therefore, there's a reason for us to connect. Um, so you actually did some homework on the person and you're not just random blanketing the world. So uh, it just shows that you're thoughtful and on top of things and everything else. Um, there are also signs as you're pitching either VCs or funds, angel funds, that they're really not that into you. And I think angels are a little bit different. Like if you're talking to an operator who's running a company, they're just going to be really busy. So sometimes there'll be a firefight and they'll disappear for a week. And that's just is what it is. But if you're actually running a fund and this is your business, um, you want to check the signs of, in terms of whether they're interested. And if not, just stop spending time on them because you only have limited time. So for example, uh, at the end of each meeting with a VC or a fund, you should ask, what are the next steps? And if they define next steps, they say, hey, I want you to meet my partner. I want you to do X, Y, Z. It means they're still interested. If they say, well, let's just keep in touch, or hey, I love what you're doing, and they kind of leave it at that, um, then it's obvious they're not interested. Uh, similarly, some people may ask for never-ending data requests. Data requests are normal, but if they ask for them without some next step, then they're just fishing for information or trying to learn from you, and it's a waste of time. If they only have the junior associate at the firm deal with you, they're not that interested. Um, if they don't reply to your emails over a, a prolonged period, they're not interested. Um, and if they don't, at the end of each meeting, try and sell you on their firm and how awesome they and the firm is and how helpful it is, it usually means they're not that interested. So in that case, you can just sort of cut things loose. Again, angels are harder to assess. Sometimes they really aren't interested and sometimes they're busy. Uh, as you look as, in terms of whether to work with a VC or not versus an angel, um, and you assume that they're going to take a board seat, the key things to look at is number of board seats that they have. If they have 14 board seats, they may just be too busy to do another investment. And so talking to them versus somebody else at the same firm may not make sense. Uh, their seniority at the firm matters. So this is all about a specific VC partner. So you're choosing between one partner and another who to talk to, who to get an intro to. Um, 
what's their reputation? You can also look at things regarding the fund in terms of its life cycle, fund size at the end of the fund. Are you asking for more money than it makes sense for that fund to invest, in which case you shouldn't be talking to them? Uh, and then there's things around personality, helpfulness, things like that. What are you actually, what are you looking for from a board member or an investor? Um, one thing I think tends not to be as important as many founders, including myself, think, especially first-time founders. I remember my, my first time running a company or starting a company, I was incredibly paranoid about anything that could be somehow, you know, related to any market that the company that I'm working on has ever thought of. And usually the conflicts don't happen. Every once in a while they do, but like 90% of the time they don't. And so... I, I wouldn't worry overly much about conflicts unless you think it's it's directly competitive and truly directly competitive. I don't mean in five years you may compete. I mean you're competing today. Uh, common mistakes in terms of fundraising. We already talked about asking too much money. There's a question around pressure tactics. So again, you need to find the right balance of moving things along but not overstating it incorrectly or too aggressively. Um, you may get too fancy with terms and we can talk about that. Uh, sometimes you'll get really bad advice from angels. I think the angel community has shifted um, sort of earlier and earlier in people's careers to the point where there's people who, you know, left school, started a company three months before, and they're angel investing in other companies. And so, you know, you, you should um, qualify advice with multiple parties. When you're talking with your legal team, they're always going to tell you that certain terms are standard, and you should ask them what proportion of the time does it happen that way? Because standard may mean 30% of the time, and there's two other ways to do it, or it may mean 80% of the time. So sometimes your lawyer is okay with something that from a business perspective, you should push back on you may get intro to the wrong venture partner. So the way VC funds work is um, the first VC, the first partner to fund that you're intro to often becomes your relationship manager for the next five years. And so you, you can get really screwed by being introduced to the wrong person just because some angel just happens to know that one person instead of that being the right person for you. So actually being, being smart yourself about saying, oh, I want to talk to Sequoia. Let me look at the list of names and see who's good for me. Let me ask around. Or I want to talk to Greylock. Who should I talk to? Or I want to talk to General Catalyst or whoever it is, right? Like you should, um, or Andreessen Horowitz, I should choose the right person. Valuations in terms of what valuation should you shoot for? Um, it's sort of like Goldilocks. You don't want it to be too high of a valuation or too low of a valuation. You want it to be just right. Too low means you're taking on too much dilution relative to the life of the company. Uh, too high means it's going to be really difficult to raise the next round. And I've seen companies blow up from raising too high. So I do think it's a real issue. And uh, in both companies that I've started, I've always taken actually the lower term sheet. Uh, in some cases, multiple times because I wanted to avoid having too high of a valuation or, or sort of getting stuck with something that I couldn't live up to. Um, and uh, so each round, the expectation is, is a two to three X bump from the prior round. Um, dilution tends to add up, so you don't want to raise too low. But again, if you raise too high, bad things can happen. Um, the three structures that are common these days in terms of funding are safes, convertible notes, and equity. Um, I'd say at this point, safes are probably 60 to 80% of what I see at least uh, for seed rounds and convertible notes are, are more rare. Um, I've seen them crop up a little bit in the crypto world uh, for different reasons. And then equity um, for a seed round tends to be 10, 20, 30% of the time. There's actually absolutely nothing wrong with doing an equity round. For my first company, I did a um, an equity raise for our first round and it was fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just uh, longer legal documents. You know, it's a hundred pages versus a few pages for the other structures. Um, it's higher complexity and you have to negotiate all these different things around board, protective provisions, option pools, paradas, et cetera, which in some cases may or may not exist depending on how the safe or convertible note is structured. Um, and you, you will have to think through all those things though for any round that you do. 
The one other thing I'd say is many founders negotiate their terms piecemeal. And so they'll get an offer and it'll be five on 10 or whatever, five on 20 as a, as a valuation for a later stage company. And um, they won't pre-negotiate everything else. And then it'll be, uh, they'll, you know, they, they may agree too early to a handshake when really what they should say is great, that valuation seems reasonable, but let's figure out all the rest of the terms because it may or may not impact the valuation. Option pool is actually a great way to actually sneak in uh, valuation shifts for the VCs. And there's a great uh, post on Venture Hacks uh, called the Option Pool Shuffle that everybody should read that uh, addresses that. Are shared spreadsheets, manual processes, and legacy systems costing your startup time and money? Well, now is the time to move your business to the cloud. NetSuite by Oracle is the business management software, BMS, that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. You've heard of NetSuite, of course. And you can save time and money and unneeded headaches by managing sales and finance and accounting and orders and HR right from your desk instantly or even on your phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it is available to you. And the power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. So here is your call to action. NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back, and they're doing it for free. Unleash your business's full potential with this free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. I want you to get Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth when you go to netsuite.com slash twist. That domain name again, netsuite.com slash T-W-I-S-T. Those five barriers to growth, you probably have heard me tell you them before. Finding your next customer, critically important. Increasing your profits, which you're going to reinvest into your company, obviously. Cash flow visibility, huh? You can't run out of money. Tackling regulations, critically important. And building a winning team. Boy, is that one important. Those are the five barriers to growth. And you're going to want to get this wonderful, wonderful guide at netsuite.com slash twist. netsuite.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing program. So uh, then there's fancy stuff you can do. Um, and I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying there's stuff you can do. Uh, one is you can put in special founder shares that in some cases, for example, would convert into preferred stock. Unclear whether or not that's okay from a tax haven perspective. Um, you may put in place super voting shares. Uh, you may give advisory discounts. So if there's somebody you really want on board who's a smaller check, you may say, well, I'll give you a, a lower cap or I'll give you some extra shares to be part of it because you're part advisor, part investor. Um, so there's different ways to do it. Uh, what some people uh, do, and it feels like it's a meme that periodically comes up once every year or two, is some people start stacking notes where they'll have two notes open at once and they'll have the value-added investors at a $6 million cap and the crappy quote-unquote investors at $10 million cap. Uh, or they'll do it time-based. They'll say, well, up to a million dollars, it's this valuation, and up to you know, the next million dollars is this other higher valuation versus just a blended valuation in between. Uh, and that just is taking advantage of different types of scarcity dynamics. Um, personally, I like to just keep things simple, uh, but some founders do that. Uh, and some investors are or are not okay with it, depending on how they think about themselves. <laughs> Um, once you put in all this work to actually find investors, you should make use of them. And so I've seen companies raise, you know, do this extensive fundraising process and then they're just kind of don't do anything with the investors. Um, so number one, I think everybody should send out a monthly update 
And I'll go through that structure just so when you call people, they actually know what's going on with the business and they feel tied to it because they keep seeing news from you. Otherwise, if you just disappear, you assume that something uh, bad has happened. Um, you may want to even calendar pinging people. It doesn't have to be that frequently. Maybe it's once a quarter. It could be every six months, whatever frequency you want, but just so that you ping people because sometimes actually pulling your head out, out of your work is very helpful to reset what you're doing and why. Um, you should figure out what each investor is actually good at. We had those sort of seven different types, but people may be really excited about helping with pricing and product positioning and less excited about uh, you know, fundraising and you'll know who to call on for what. I've seen some people do mock board meetings or advisory sessions where they choose two, three people and keep using them regularly. And then I've also seen people just do like a quarterly or annual all hands for all their investors and they run through progress and have a discussion around two or three key strategic topics. And then of course, you, you shouldn't just depend on your investors. You can also build out founder peer networks. And I think those are often equally important or more important. Monthly update structure, uh, basically put your ass at the top. What do you need help with? Because if somebody's just skimming through it, that's the thing they're going to see. Um, so ask them to help you. You, if you want, can put in a quick summary of where you're at, some key metrics. It's best to do them over time so people actually know if they've changed in a good or bad way. Any team, product, partnership updates. If you want, put in industry news. Definitely put in burn, uh, cash, runway, where you're at from that perspective. Some people put that at the top as well. And then if you want, hey, we went on this offsite for Halloween and here's some pictures. Hi. Um, <clears throat> awesome presentation. Thank you for coming and uh I think we're all enlightened. Um, I had a question because I saw that you'd invested in a few marketplaces and I was curious when I know that you came in at a little bit later stage, but when you were considering like how they scale, um, what were some of the key indicators that showed you like they were doing well? Was it, you know, the number of conversions, cost of acquisition, sure. just general strategy? And by they, you mean? Uh, I saw Airbnb and then I think um, Instacart was up there because they're kind of two-sided marketplace as well. Sure, yeah. Yeah, Airbnb I invested in uh, when there were eight people, so still pretty early. Um, Instacart I invested in later. Um, You know, I think when all said and done, it was three things. One is, um, you know, what's the organic traction? How are they growing at what rate? And, um, you know, did it look like if it wasn't profitable that it could turn profitable on a unit economic basis? Although, honestly, part of it is just asking what's the TAM and how big is this market? So I think early on, it's less about are the exact unit economics exactly right and more about how big can this thing get and is there a clear path to, to doing something good over time? And I think um, the late stage investors kind of lose that because they get so numbers focused that they they lose the big picture of what's interesting or important. Um, so I don't know if that addressed your question or not, but... And obviously, you know, uh, there will be some very hardcore marketplace investors that will get really deep into the numbers and sometimes they'll miss really good things because of it. And the flip of it is you obviously want to be in the numbers so you understand the business. A couple questions around displaying numbers. So we're SaaS business. Uh, We have users that sign up monthly and then users that sign up annually. Right now we track both. Should we just blend it into, that's one question, blend it into show it over time? Or should we also show how many each month? It seems to be 10%, which is a good number going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second question is uh, onboarding costs. Mm-hmm. So there are some onboarding revenue that comes in for 25% of the users. Mm-hmm. And how do, how do VCs look at that as far as um, in the SaaS mm-hmm. model? Yeah, I would probably show it monthly because people want to, and then I'd maybe have like a annual number above it. 
uh, just so that people can see what the trajectory is. Because what sometimes will happen is we'll see very fast growth early and then it'll kind of flatten out and the blended number looks great. So no matter what, people want to dig into to what's really happening month over month. And as you're scaling, are you still growing at a good clip or not? Because you often see as well that there's sort of scale effects where things dampen down at a certain scale. Um, so uh, I would do that. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? Oh, the onboarding. Yeah, I mean, I would show onboarding revenue. Um, if you want, if in your financials, you can break it out separately or you can just mention here's onboarding versus MRR or ARR or whatever other type of revenue you have, just so it's clear and it, it isn't confusing. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think the primary number that people will be looking at is ARR. And then they'll be looking at things like, if you have the data, uh, what's the churn rate on the revenue? And so people are always looking for like negative churn businesses, right? Where it's, you're expanding the the uh, the footprint in a, in a business over time versus, you know, losing a lot of customers. There's a really good um, slide deck from Amun, who is at Social Plus Capital, who's now at Kleiner Perkins, that goes into what does he look for is a SaaS investor in terms of metrics. And I think it's actually a pretty good overview of how to think about uh, core SaaS metrics. Um, I have two parts to the question. The first one would be, uh, could you describe a little bit more um, like what you would look for in the organic traction realm? And then the second one would be when talking to early stage founders, is there a, a point where like they're kind of talking to you about what they're doing today and then like they have this vision for the future? Does that vision ever become sort of like outlandish and kind of just like silly to you or do you buy into the like longer term kind of crazy thinking potentially yeah Might sound crazy um so i guess in terms of the second question first um you know i think the key thing you want to avoid is multi-miracle startups and so every startup needs at least one miracle to work otherwise somebody else would already be doing it right so you need something to click into place that people don't believe will happen or that's new or interesting um, but if there's two of them, you're like, well, you're compounding very low probability events. This thing is never going to work. So um, I remember there was this period of time where people would say, well, uh, this was like years ago, we really want to take on Yelp. And so what we're going to do is build the world's best events product. And then once we have everybody on the events product, it's really easy for us to pivot into local. And then we're going to take over and destroy Yelp. And you're like, well, why don't you just try and destroy Yelp? Like even just getting the events market is going to be so hard that if that's really your end goal, you know, you should start with that. Uh, so it depends on what you mean by the, the big picture goal. I think the other place where, where you sometimes lose people is um, connecting the big picture to what you're actually doing. Um, we're going to build AGI, but you know we're starting with a shopping app. You're like, well, you know that isn't really well connected. Uh, there are a small number of investors, though, or a reasonable subset who are very driven by that giant mission. And you may just want to modulate your pitch if you're talking to those people specifically because you want to, just like there are certain customers who are going to care about certain things more or less, there's going to be certain investors who are going to care about certain aspects more or less. And what was the first part of the question? It's about what you would look for in the organic traction realm, oh, like yeah. particular things like viral coefficients or like. It I depends on the type of business it is. You know, if you're a SaaS business, unless you're Slack or, you know, one or two others, you're not really going to have a viral coefficient. You're just going to have. Uh, some growth rate. I think um, in general you want, so it depends on what type of business you're in. I think in general you're going to look for uh, some com compounding growth rate as an investor. Um, how do you see when you look at a company that's in the early stage and they start being cash flow positive? Um, it seems interesting that some investors tend to see that as a bad sign, while others see it as a really good sign. Can you sort of talk about your perspective on that? 
It depends on what else is going on. So if you came in and you said, our growth has been flat for three years and we have, we've always made 5 million in revenue, but look, our margin is growing. That's less interesting. If you're saying we're growing at this fast compounding rate and money's just going in the bank, that's fantastic. Um, and if you actually look at some of the biggest companies, some of them um, were actually profitable very early, you know, uh, particularly in the, the 90s generation, right? eBay was profitable really early. Yahoo was profitable really early. Um, so in, there's some companies where the money just went into the bank and just sat there. Um, there's one company that I seeded that um, never raised another round. And everybody is clamoring to talk to them. And the founders are just kind of ignoring the world because they turn profitable early. They're growing at a really good clip. You know, they have enormous uh, options. So I think it really depends on what else is going on. I am so excited that Campaign Monitor is a new partner here at This Week in Startups. Welcome to the family, Campaign Monitor. If you don't know Campaign Monitor, it is the easiest to use email marketing platform in the world have amazing mobile-friendly templates and a drag-and-drop email editor, as well as award-winning 24-7 customer support. It's used by over 250,000 businesses worldwide, and we started using it for our ad campaigns, and you're not going to believe this, but we tripled our open rate. We we now have a 48.5% open rate with our first campaign, and that was in under 24 hours. And here's how it works. You go to campaignmonitor.com slash twist. And this is us actually building it. You sign up for free. Again, campaignmonitor.com slash twist. Create an account. Zip, zip, zip. And then you click on create a new campaign. And my CMO Presh names the campaign, the launch scale invite. And he says, uh, let's personalize it with the person's first name. Boom. Now he's going to pick one of these beautifully designed templates. There's so many to choose from, and they're all designed by award-winning designers, and he finds one he likes. We value your uh, feedback, and he says, you're invited to launch scale. He edits it. You see him go to Google Docs, cut and paste, zip, 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 and instead of completing a survey, he says, hey, I'm going to make this template my own. I'm going to apply for a free founder pass. You saw him zip into the footer and say, you know what? We focus on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, and Instagram, and he puts that in there. You see him putting our sponsors in, and he actually works at this pace. He's a superhuman uh, CMO, fresh. And here's the preview window, beautiful. You can see what it looks like on mobile, perfect. He picks what list he wants to share it with, and then he can schedule the delivery. Does he want to send it now or at a specific time? He's gonna pick a specific time, Eastern time, tomorrow, in the morning, boom and he can look at the worldwide view of people opening it in real time the first person opened it in uh, arizona and we can zip in and watch over time people doing it that's how easy it is and they have over 250 integrations in their app store and you can connect it to your favorite cms your blog or other third party software and again in our first test we tripled our open rate to 48.5% in the first 24 hours. You can easily set up A-B testing and figure out what works and what doesn't. And you can create these custom automated emails that you've probably been getting where you send multiple emails over time to somebody in a campaign, huh? All this stuff is available right now at a very affordable price. Go to campaignmonitor.com twist. And you'll just go to campaignmonitor.com slash twist. Listeners who sign up and become a customer will receive a free t-shirt. Once again, campaignmonitor.com slash twist.
Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Is there ever a time where there's a lead in a convertible note round? Or is the lead always... Yeah, this is all independent of round structure. So I'll get in the differences between a note, a safe, and an equity financing. And in general, this could apply to any financing. Was there a lead at the time that you invested in Airbnb? Yeah, I invested in a Series A for Airbnb. So okay. I invested a little bit later. Um, in the seed, I think it was... Um, Sequoia actually did their seed, and yeah. so Sequoia was a lead even then. So they 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 always had a lead. Okay, cool. Is that that one fund that's going to um, require the eighteen Correct. to twenty two percent? And would they take essentially everything, or do you have to think about this as like? Okay, yeah, you have to think about it as incremental additional dilution on top of that for other people. Okay. Would you uh, also suggest anchoring lower with the seed round, or only once you get to Series A? Uh, with the seed round, I would either anchor low or just position what price you want. And usually it'll end up being arranged because you don't know exactly yeah, where it'll be. Yeah. So maybe for the seeds, you're like, well, we're thinking of eight to 10 and you kind of see who has interest where yeah. or whatever valuation. I mean, it depends on the stage of the company. It could be a $5 million seed or $3 million valuation if it's pre-seed, or it could be, you know, 20 if you just came out of YC and there's some weird dynamic going on. Right. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. So for bigger rounds in seed, like two to 4 million range, are there more complicated terms that are pretty common, like protective provisions and stuff? Uh, not unless you do an equity round. So in general, a lot of those things come with equity rounds. Uh, or if you're a crypto company, because investors have become increasingly worried about the behavior of some of the protocols. Financial, since it's so important, are there any tips you have on like, what are they looking for? Because yeah. mine currently is sure. just literally a revenue. Yeah, I would growth. just keep it super simple. It's like revenue, burn. It's just your cost assumptions. Like, what are you really assuming things are going to cost? And are you realistic? And then how do you expect your business to evolve? That's kind of what people are looking for. It becomes more important later. You know, for a seed round, it may or may not be important. It primarily just shows that you generated a budget. You think so you're it. actually just thinking about yeah. it as a business, you know? Yes, yes. Um, and you see some companies without it. And you're kind of like, it's okay, but you sometimes worry, well, are they really being serious about this? You know, I get it. So cool. Thank you. In the last sentence there, uh, so would love to connect before we close the round. Like, yeah. I'm just wondering if investors are so immune to like these kind uh, of the little pressure. Little, like, yeah, I mean, you could drop that. I mean, it depends on whether the round really is far along. If yeah. it's not, I wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. I would, great point. Sorry. Um, I wouldn't put false pressure in there. Yeah but I would put urgency. So you could drop this line too and just say, hey, yeah. we're talking to a bunch of people. It's looking good. So if we can connect soon, great. Uh, you're raising a really good point, which is um, people sometimes put in too much pressure. Right. Uh, I should amend the slide. So it's, a, it's good feedback. Um, and then it, people are just like, okay, I don't have time. Fine. We'll just pass. Right. Um, or they're like, you know, like, is this really true? You know, maybe they... Yeah. Yeah, I think I you're right. Know. You need to find the right balance. So it's a, it's cool. a good point. All right. Thanks. One more. Okay. Let's say, let's say uh, you got a term sheet and then you're talking to other people and trying to move it along and they ask like, what is, what is, what are those terms? Like, is it okay to, you know, kind of brush that off and say, Hey, I'd love to like chat about it in person. Cause I'm not really mm -hmm. sure what that protocol should be. Yeah. I think, um, so it depends on the context. Um, so say that you're, you have, uh, a term sheet from one fund and you're discussing terms with another fund. Um, you can give them uh, either directional input or just say, look, like you're way off if they are. So for example, say somebody gave you five on 20 as a term sheet and uh, somebody else is giving you 10 on 40. You can say, look, somebody else is offering 10 on 40. Like, I really want to work with you. You know, where can you come up? Because there's such a big discrepancy between these two things. I'm looking for the right long-term partner. I know this is a long-term relationship. 
I don't need the 10 on 40, but I need better. You know, you could do things like that if, if it makes sense. And I, I think part of it too is not trying to, some people do this and play the hardball and they're like, you need to match it or do better. Others are like, you know what, I'm going to be working with this person for the next eight years. You know, I should find the right balance in terms of if I really like them, you know, uh, how to work with them. Quick yeah. Are there particular things that you look for in the partner at the fund um, to determine like if they're the right one? Like, yeah, it's, it's all this stuff. It's the seniority at the firm, it's number of board yeah. seats, it's reputation, all that stuff. Um, in particular regards to like past deals that you think might be related to like, let's say for instance, like we're a marketplace, mm -hmm. um, would I try to find the partner that's like championed some of those deals and like try to go through them or is there? Yeah, I think that works most of the time. Uh -huh. Every once in a while, the marketplace person is just sick of doing marketplaces. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not joking. They're just yeah. like, oh, I've done seven marketplaces. I want to do something else. Yeah. And so I would just uh, qualify it a little bit. Most of the time that's helpful. Sometimes uh, they actually don't want to do another thing. And you, instead, it may be better to go to the new person at the firm who has more board seats and, or less board seats and more time. And they just partner with that person to do it. It's really smart. Thank you. So if you raise pre-seed on a convertible note, mm -hmm. and then you want to raise seed, can, then can you raise seed on a convertible note? But when do the notes convert? Yeah, the notes will convert. Um, usually the terms, the terms of the note are on yeah, some size of qualified financing. You can definitely stack notes. The key thing that people um, don't necessarily always do well is understand the true dilutive capabilities yeah. of those notes. So you suddenly realize that you sold half the company on notes because you just kept rolling them on. But say you raise on a convertible note mm -hmm. and your qualified financing is like a million and then yeah. you want to raise seed on a convertible note, how does that work? Or does it work? Yeah, it's usually fine um, because it's often defined as an equity raise of a million. So usually the terms of the note will define what that means and when things will convert because usually the note doesn't define the type of stock that it converts into otherwise. And so okay. it becomes really hard to, to, to convert anything. Um, in general, I would recommend a safe over a note because you have a uh, no payback term and you have no interest rate. So from a founder perspective, it's more friendly. It's argued that it's more friendly for some investors because from an investor perspective, um, the, the capital gains clock starts earlier on a safe. In some cases, accelerators will do notes because there's an assumption that it'll convert into either the safe or into the, into the equity financing, but it really depends on how it's written. And have you seen people doing convertible note and pre-seed and then safe and seed? Like, is that something I've that seen happens? every combination on the okay. planet. I've cool. seen equity and then two notes and then more equity. Like, okay. it's awesome. whatever you want to do. Thank you. Yeah. On the option pool, if you already have an option pool in place, do they still try for another option pool? It depends on how big it is. If it's like half a percent, then yeah, that's plenty. It depends a little bit on who you want to hire and is it single founder versus not. And are you bringing on a future co-founder and all that stuff? But in general, that's probably fine. Uh, to what extent uh, at seed round uh, should the uh, board composition be an issue? Like, uh, mm. do we is it is it worth fighting tooth and nail to, like, you know, to keep yeah. investors out of the board? Uh, most seed rounds will not have a board seat. Uh, there are some VCs who are known for taking board seats that they're explicitly going to step off of when an A happens. So I think first round used to do that. I can't remember if they still do or not. Um, so sometimes they're like, we're going to be good stewards and help. A lot of funds realize that if they're doing enough seeds, they just don't have the bandwidth and time to really do that. And it isn't necessarily helpful to the company. So it depends a little bit on the size of the seed. Definitions are really weird these days too, where, you know, a seed round could be anything from like one to 6 million or, you know, 300 K to 6 million or whatever, you know, so I don't know what, what's what anymore. It's just kind of pools of capital. <laughs>